the Lloyd's List Shipping Podcast. Welcome to the Lloyd's List Podcast. I'm Richard Mead, editor of Lloyd's List. Ship owners will have to start placing orders for vessels that are going to operate on low-carbon fuel or energy sources by 2029. But the shipping fuels and energy sources of the future do not exist yet, at least not in any kind of scale. And that transition is going to require around $2 trillion worth of capital investment, along with a wholesale reorganisation of the bunker sector. Gone are the days of choosing one or two similar fuels at the pump. The future will hold a plethora of different fuels from multiple sources and potentially very different pumps. Ahead lies a complete shift in the way we look at shipping and think about its daily commercial operations, but that era-defining transition requires practical decisions to be taken now. Fleet renewal will continue and ships that will potentially operate for the next 20 years will need to be financed, built and operated. So, what are the practical and pragmatic choices open to ship owners building today? And what are the prospects for ships expected to operate through the regulatory and energy transition that will ultimately make even the greenest choices today redundant before the end of that asset's operational life cycle? I'm delighted to say we have a very special guest this week to discuss that issue and many more. Chris Viernicki, Chairman, President and Chief Executive Officer of the Class Society ABS. Welcome back to the Lloyd's List podcast, Chris. Hi, Richard. I hope everyone is safe and well, and it is it is um, it is great to be back. And uh, thank you so much for uh, uh, giving me this chance to kind of spend some time with you this morning. Oh, thank you for coming on. Um, in some respects, we we are picking up where we left off about a year ago when you were last on the podcast. But I'm really trying to sort of shift the focus a little bit in this decarbonisation debate that is becoming uh, much more pragmatic, but also much more political. I would argue. Let's start with that 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 pragmatic decision that shipping is looking at right now. We know what's coming down the pipeline for, for 2050, and we know that there are a lot of difficult choices to make between here and there. But the reality is shipping has to renew its fleet on an ongoing basis. Decisions have to be made now. Are there any good decisions to be made when it comes to that transitional shipbuilding choice, as far as you're concerned? Sure, Richard. I mean, listen, the... the um... Uh, this process for all of us has actually already started. Uh, you know, we, we we have started on this journey. Uh, and if you look back at the last several years with the uh, uh, things like the IMO sulfur cap, looking at EEDI, looking at SEMP for operations and now MRV, uh, you know, collectively as an industry, you know, we've been kind of warming up to what we see going forward. Uh, you know, these new regulations, which uh, we see in front of us, which will probably get firmed up in 2023 and really kind of, um, you know, put a, a clean line of sight on 2030 and 2050 are certainly going to speed up um, uh, and impact kind of the, the movements that we're, that we're seeing collectively as an industry. And, and quite frankly, the outcomes from these regulations are really now are providing a sense of sharpness, a clear line of sight, and and as we as as we all know, a, a much greater call to action. Mm. Uh, but I think I think as we move forward, um, and as I think as we go green, or I think as we continue to move on this uh, uh, on our carbon journey, I think what we're going to find is we're going to have to we're going to have to operate a little differently because there are a lot of things now that are coming into place. 
that are going to require. It's going to be a, a, a decision making process that I think to some extent is going to require a new set of dynamics and to some extent uh, a new mindset. And I think what what is beginning to kind of uh, really uh, come out now is that uh, success in going green or success in this uh, journey to decarbonization, it is clearly, Richard, going to be a team sport. It is going to require all stakeholder, stakeholders uh, working together collectively across the whole supply chain. It's going to be not just owners, it's going to be yards, equipment manufacturers, governments, class societies, charters, everyone now really, really pulling together. It's also going to require, uh, when you start looking at the decision-making process, uh, it's not going to be essentially a linear solution. It, it's going to be, it's going to require a hybrid solution. I think we're going to see this more so than ever before. I think owners in particular are going to really have essentially four levers that uh, that they can play as they as they position themselves going forward and well, I'm sure we'll talk about these uh, later on the podcast but clearly alternate fuels is uh, is is one lever but listen technology improvements uh, greater focus on operational efficiencies such as speed optimization just in time shipping and the impact of policy which we've actually seen this week begin to kind of um, shape itself in terms of what we've seen with the uh, emission trading scheme coming out of the EU and, and even the, the proposal that uh, we've seen, I think, for carbon levy from Trafagora. It's going to take four of these levers working together to essentially get you to achieve the outcomes. And by the way, the outcomes, when we look at them at uh, uh, not just 2030, 2050, you know, it's not a, it, these are not ship specific outcomes. These are outcomes really being driven by overall fleet portfolios. So uh, it is, it is uh, you know, as you look forward and you look at some of these, uh, some of these um, um, outcomes and, and kind of what will get us there, it's going to be a combination of marine fuels, uh, Richard, that will get you you know, to the, uh, you know, to, to meet those outcomes that owners will have an opportunity to, um, to decide based on, on their own profiles, their own, uh, their own trading routes, uh, their own, uh, the way they, they, they operationally go about their business. Mm. Well, let's, let's talk a little bit more about those four levers. I think, you know, you mentioned technological improvements and operation efficiency. Now there are, they are levers that are ready to go you know the the technology and the operational efficiency measures are ready to go out of the box for most ship owners who want to invest and to some extent you could argue that will get them over the line to 2030 um, in terms of some of the decisions that have to be made immediately now that's been covered in in great depth there abs has provided you know a huge amount of guidance along with the rest of the industry and i think it's fair to say that probably most of our listeners are, are going to be well aware of the options when it comes to those two levers but by the time you get to alternative fuels and the policy debate there's a lot of unknowns now we know the 2050 target we know the direction of travel but there are pathways, I guess, open, judging from the last ABS study in terms of the alternative fuels, not all of them are immediate pathways. 
where do you see the, going back to the, the the decision making that needs to be taken now where do you see the pragmatic choices being taken by the shipping industry in the next five to ten years say well you mentioned the pathways richard so when you kind of take a step back and you kind of look at uh, you know all these alternate fuel options and so forth what uh, what uh, you begin to see here is there's kind of relatively three distinct what I call swim lanes or pathways to hit these uh, uh, decarbonization targets as they move along essentially a, a line of sight that starts with carbon reduction to carbon neutral to eventually zero carbon. You've got the, essentially the light gas pathway, which really starts with LNG and eventually works its way towards ammonia. You've got the heavy gas or alcohol pathway that starts with LPG or methanol and works its way to hydrogen. And then you have that middle swim lane, which is essentially biofuel or synthetic fuels as you look at first, second, third generations going forward. So the place to start is essentially um, in those with those pathways. And when you look at alternate fuels, you're looking at essentially uh, LNG, LPG methanol, or biofuels, because that's the only place to start right now. All three of these fuels uh, can be used right now. There are existing propulsion systems. All three of these fuels have actually shown proven potential to reduce or eliminate CO2. Uh, and so the industry, as it moves forward to get to its mix, Okay, to get to that 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 uh, you know that uh, kind of mix of fuels to get in 2050 that collectively the industry will meet the targets really mm -hmm. starts to some extent with you know these you know one of these three types of fuels uh, and then then it's going to be up to the owners in the industry to begin to look at how you build off these fuels moving forward. I mean, we've mm. seen owners look at biodiesel, moving to methanol, eventually moving to, you know, beginning to kind of look at ammonia or hydrogen downstream. You know, we've seen, we've seen, and, and by the way, I wanted to say that when you look at an ultimate 2050 mix, uh, as before I get into kind of the timeline of readiness of these things, I don't think you're going to see oil-based fuels disappear. I mean, uh, what we've seen is, uh, uh, you know, one one particular scenario based obviously on assumptions of trade routes and voyage optimization. You know, we see still about 30, 40 percent oil-based uh, fuels in use. We see, uh, you know, somewhere around 35 percent of some combination of ammonia, hydrogen. We see. 10% of uh, around 10 to 15% of LNG and, you know, somewhere around 10 to 15% of uh, biofuel or methanol. So this gets back to the hybrid solutions relative to the starting point. It's going to be um, a mixture based on many different things that I think will ultimately get us as an industry to where we need to be. So we talked about the pathways, but let's talk a little bit about the um, hesitancy, I guess. We, when we're talking about LNG, that's one thing, and, th and that is certainly a choice. But do you get the impression that there is a reluctance in the industry to move ahead with anything beyond that? And I ask, you know, against the backdrop of the lowest order book in, in, in living memory uh, and you know, reports that we get from the shipping industry that, you know, wherever there is a decision that can be held off, 
it will be held off until there is at least some degree of some certainty. Well, I mean, Richard, I think what what uh, there, I think, listen, the virus itself in many ways has put a pause. Uh, you know, going into the into this year, there was uh, there was a you know, one of the big challenges was kind of that level of market uncertainty and, uh, you know, predictability. And that in itself was kind of, you know, causing owners to pause. I think this virus um, probably um, reinforced that. I actually think the pause, uh, whether it's for a year or two years, is going to help in the development of alternate fuels because it's going to give people a little bit more time to understand what's going on. Um, you know, as you look forward, there's no question that vessels are going to have to be ordered. You look at the backdrop of this against the mm -hmm. kind of continued economic growth pro uh, projections, you're going to need vessels. You're going to see, you know, when you look at the, the age of the existing fleet, um, you know, vessels will need to be ordered uh, going forward. But I think, I think, on top of of uh, the fact that you've got um, uh, the virus, which causes itself, which causes a pause, and I think that you have a lot of owners that aren't really uh, ready to be kind of first movers, mm. and would be m much more comfortable kind of watching how this begins to play out. Listen, in 2024, you're going to be seeing uh, Man and uh, Varsilla are going to be introducing ammonia engines. Okay, there's you know a lot of interesting discussions. There's a lot of pilot projects here on on using biodiesel and, mm. and methanol as as they kind of morph to to uh, ammonia or hydrogen. There's a lot of active design work going on right now, uh, whether it's uh, with a you know from the shipyards uh, with uh, with uh, various class societies, you know, beginning to support you know what does the impact of a of an ammonia or hydrogen fueled ship look like in the future because you know biodiesel is actually in many ways easy okay the question there in the long run is going to be ultimately the supply you can you can use existing engines and that in fact you can we've done some studies ourselves that you don't really have to modify significantly uh ship designs relative to um uh, engine rooms, cargo capacities, or, or tank arrangements. Okay, mm -hmm. when you look at uh, LNG, you have to you have to make some modifications depending on the type of ship relative to uh, adding an additional tank. But when you get to ammonia and hydrogen, uh, recognizing that uh, you know the so the issues with uh, you know in a case of ammonia, uh, volumetric energy density and toxicity and so forth, whether you use it as a liquid or whether you use it as a fuel cell, it in itself will have a huge impact on ship design. So I think what we're seeing right now, this pause, whether it's, and I suspect some of it is obviously COVID related, others is just waiting to see how these things begin to develop and, and, get, and, 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 and get confidence in what you see, I think is actually good because I think we will need two or three years to really get our arms around a lot of different things as mm. as the industry begins to develop its and an owner begins to develop its strategies going forward. A lot of benchmarking is being done right now. Yes, and, which is which is incredibly important because you got to figure out where the gaps are relative to any decarbonization strategy, relative to then kind of what fuel use you use or other levers to to um, um, uh, fill that gap. 
True, true. And I, I, it, it's a point well made. And I, I would broadly agree with it. I guess, you know, you raised the um, the issue of no first mover advantage, uh, you know, and, and a traditionally very conservative industry from the ship owning perspective. Uh, you know, this is an industry of regulatory laggards in some respects in that, you know, nobody really has any commercial incentive to move above and beyond their nearest rival in a very fragmented industry. And that is not an environment that is conducive for the ship owner to really push this ahead. But as you've also said, this is a team sport. And I would say probably the the more forceful drivers right now do seem to be coming from the political sphere. Uh, and we can talk you know, briefly about the uh, the European parliamentary decision, but also the charters. And you mentioned Trafigura as well, who, who uh, proposed you know, a very interesting uh, series of details around a carbon levy and, and put a price on it, which is the first time we've seen that from a charter. Uh, they were estimating around 250 to $300 per tonne of carbon outputs as being the the level that would be needed to close the competitive gap between carbon intensive fuels and, and the low or zero carbon alternatives. I wonder, you know, how do you see that dynamic playing out? The the, the interest of the, the, the cargo interest coming in and, and really forcing the hand of the owners in some respects. Well, Richard, I, I can tell you, I'm not a big fan of the uh, EU emission trading scheme uh, as it applies to ships, because I think that in itself is is going to be uh, fraught with issues. And it and in fact, uh, relative to, uh, if, you know, between that and let's say the fuel levy proposal that uh, Trafigura, I think, is proposing, and I haven't read it, it seems that that is, uh, you know, is uh, easier and less complicated to work with. I think the uh, emission trading scheme, and I think obviously there are noble intentions, everyone is really trying to, you know, develop in some sort of shape a carbon trajectory pathway. In this case, the uh, you know the I suspect at some point if uh, if the EU moves forward, you'll have a you know the the ETS carbon trajectory path probably will line up with you know some some potential green financing path. But the problem here is again recognizing where things are. This will actually impact both charters because now this will impact artificially uh, commercial decisions based on a whole different dynamic, which is what I said at the beginning in terms of dynamics and mindsets. I mean, you now charters, if uh, the if I, as I understand it, the ETS goes through, they themselves are gonna have to be required to um, uh, purchase X amount of allowances for the fleets that they charter. And then if you've got, of course, the owner doing the same thing with their individual fleets. Uh, and ultimately, um, I think this is, uh, I, I don't think this is, uh, I, I don't see it, it it's, it's obviously going to be developing itself uh, as we move forward, but I, uh, I, I don't see this. And, and to be honest with you, the other thing is, in this journey, the most important thing is to have it led by IMO. Once you start bringing in regional interests, like the EU or in other parts of the world, we run into problems that we faced in the past, as you can imagine in, in other regulations that have come in. And what happens is we lose the overall fabric and this becomes incredibly fragmented. And listen, the, the ship owner is at ground zero of this. So I think these policies um, are 
you know, you, you got to really find the right one. But I think the wrong one is really going to impact decision making probably more so than it's ever been before. And what you're going to be doing, you're going to be making, you know, kind of decisions based on a cap and trade rather than on um, and, 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 and really trying to to work that. Uh, and to be honest with you, Richard, larger shipping companies uh, are going to have an advantage going for smaller companies in this new world when you start bringing all these things together um, are, 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 are not going to have the flexibility are not going to have the options that the larger companies will have indeed and, and whichever way you cut it things are getting more complicated I, I wonder where you would position offsetting uh, as, as an option in you know, characterizing shipping as a sort of hard to abate sector and you know, given all the things we've discussed and the fact that, you know, timelines do look a little bit punchy, even for the most uh, proactive and green members of the industry. Do you not think that offsetting is going to be an inevitable part of the mix going forward? Well, I mean, it, it, if you look at kind of where things are going, it's obviously, I mean, it's real. It's it's already kind of, you know, starting to move in that direction. But, uh, you know, you're going to be you're going to be looking, you know, you're going to have charters looking at allowances and offsets relative to the fleets that they bring in, which will have a huge impact on owners. You're going to have owners themselves that are going to be uh, required uh, to do offsets. So you're, you're going to be basically triggering uh, decision making off of a whole new dynamic. Uh, that, that we haven't seen before. And and against the backdrop of all of this, it's, I think, uh, Richard, especially for me coming from, you know, from a class perspective, I think one of the big challenges is in this whole discussion, whether it's a policy issue, a technology issue, a fuel issue, it is really understanding the uh, and recognizing the unintended safety consequences that are going to be kind of developing through this new dynamic and, and, and quite frankly, new mindset. Because as you start looking at different types of fuels, different types of ways to optimize performance, as you look at the impact of digitization, you know, and, and in this pause, as, as a lot of, you know, as we're kind of in, you know, in a, in a relatively, let's say, you know, two, three year-ish pause, really beginning to understand not only hidden costs of alternatives, but unintended safety consequences. It's going to be absolutely important because ultimately safety is the mantra of this industry. And we can never lose sight of that uh, as, w and as we collectively work together to achieve the outcomes that, you know, that, that, uh, that, are, that we're looking at for 2050. And of course, yeah, people, we can't forget people either in this process. OK, you can't you cannot, you know, people at the end of the day is going to make everything we've talked about work. I mean, people really have to have the priority. The people are, you know, people are going to be incredibly important, whether it's uh, handling a dynamic fuel, different type of fuel on board a vessel, whether it's looking at the type of decision making that that needs to be made. And so, as we talk about all these levers, one of the things we, you know, we talk about you know, safety, we, we, cannot, we cannot forget people. You know, the, the real heroes of this will ultimately be not the alternate fuel or the technology, it's gonna be, it's gonna be the people. 
And I will tell you, I actually believe that our industry still tends to view crews with a 20th century kind of eyes and attitudes, and they need to prepare uh, the the uh, seafarers and the crew to be able to handle 21st century technologies and challenges, and be able to give them the confidence when the vessel is uh, out at sea somewhere to, uh, to be able to make the right decision uh, going forward. And and therein lies a whole other podcast that I would love to get you back to uh, talk about at some point. But uh, for now, Chris Vinicky from ABS, I'm afraid we're going to have to leave it there. But thank you very much for joining the Lloyd's List podcast. Thank you, Richard. Stay safe and well. Thanks for having me. <laughs>